Hey guys, Eric Olson here, and welcome back to another edition of the Science Centric Podcast. Um, this episode is a little bit different than other episodes uh, that we've done in the past, where I usually interview a author about uh, their book. This episode features my friend and colleague, Michael Mills, who's a New York-based science communicator. And we're talking about the, um, you know, four or five interesting news stories um, that came out in the last week or so about science and related fields. So if that sounds interesting to you, um, enjoy the episode. And we should be back next week with another interview episode, this time with a book author talking about the early days of the COVID pandemic. So it's, it's, uh, it should be a good interview. Anyways, um, while I have your ear, uh, just remember that you can help support us on Patreon. And that's, uh, there's info on that at sciencecentric.com support. And we'd really appreciate it if you could write a review for us on whichever podcast platform you're listening on or just rate us. That's probably the easier thing. So anyways, thanks a lot for listening and uh, talk to you soon. Welcome everybody to the first uh, science-centric live stream uh, podcast. It's part of the podcast, but it's live. And I have with me my very first in-person guest on the podcast. Uh, mostly due to the pan- pandemic, I was never actually able to have anybody in person. This is Michael Mills. Yes. How's it going? So glad Hi. to have you here. Thank you. So let me tell you a little bit about Michael Mills. Yes, please do. <laughs> Michael Mills is an actor, host, and science communicator based out of New York City, where we are now, live in Brooklyn. Uh, he, he has... Um, he has a passionate pursuit of different ways to educate audiences about the world of science, and it's led him to roles uh, as the host of The L-Spot Show, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, a bi-monthly roundtable-style talk show catering to urban audiences on Brooklyn Access TV. Yeah. Michael has also hosted videos from a diverse range of clients, ranging from top scientific publishers, such as the American Chemical Society, which we've worked together on, um, and to mainstream science publications such as Insider Science. Um, and although he likes science communication uh, and wants to reach marginalized communities, he also spends his time nurturing his talents as an illustrator, trained vocalist, performer, and avid video, video game lover. Oh, man. <laughs> so love welcome. video games. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Excited. Yeah, I'm glad Knock you could make it. Episode. This is awesome. So, um, so maybe just for the audience, uh, you know, how did you get interested in science and science communication? Yeah. What, what brought you to that yeah. Uh, place? Yeah. Science. Um, ever since I was a kid, I mean, like cliche story, but, um, I, I grew up obsessed with chemistry and biology and zoology and like my science textbooks and I would read them from front to back and science fiction yeah uh, probably science fiction is what really did it for me like huge Michael Crichton fan uh read Andromeda Strain and Jurassic Park and, and The Lost World and like all of those books and oh, just yeah. really fell yeah. in love with like this idea that science can kind of give you and bring you anything like anything yeah. is possible 
Um, yeah, science fiction is like a huge gateway into into what into science. It is. Although I think once you get into into science and you start working in science, you you realize it's it's not as cool as like yeah, Jurassic Park, you know. right? It's like it's like this is a lot of work. Yeah, right? like, it's a lot slower. Is, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot slower. There's like a lot slower. More work involved. So yes. that's that's kind of what led me to uh, you know more to the science communication mm -hmm. stuff as well mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so the the format for this live stream is um we're just kind of making it up as we go i'm here but for it. <laughs> <laughs> um so what i thought we could do is just go through some really you know interesting science stories that have come out recently and we could talk about them a little bit yeah um and you know it's a it's a good way for people to catch up on what's happening in science. Cause I, I even have a hard time keeping track and, and, yeah. and having like a curated list of, of, of stories is kind of interesting. And then we can also just kind of, as people with backgrounds in science, we can, you know, kind of give our take on it. So yeah. we'll see, we'll see our, how our it goes. expert take. <laughs> our not, a very not <laughs> expert take. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, you, you have your background, you have a degree in biology yes. and I, mine's in biochem and I have, science journalism as well but yep. that's you know that makes us very much non-experts <laughs> in, in anything <laughs> um okay so let's uh so let's take a let's take a look at our first story so um let's see if we can go all right um i hope that's coming through okay i, I need to get an ad blocker too so that we're not seeing like <laughs> Let's blow that up a little bit. Okay, so um, so the first story I thought was interesting was this story about uh, uh, squashed bugs on uh, license plates. Yeah. Um, and this is a, this I picked picked this particular article from the Scotsman, but this was actually picked up by a lot of different outlets. Mm -hmm. But let's just read a little bit of it. Um, so in a highly creative study, a citizen science survey monitored the number and different species of insects found squashed on number plates across the country. Using the splatometer method and with expert guidance by Kent Wildlife Trust and Bug Life, researchers found the abundance of flying insects in Scotland has plummeted by nearly 30% over the last past 18 years. The study uh, was ha has highlighted a worrying trend in the crucial need for insect-focused fo oh, conservation research. <laughs> Maybe they spell it differently in Scotland. They I don't probably know. do. Yeah. <laughs> There's an extra S. You're, you're going to get a message saying, excuse me, misspell. What? Um, the 2021 Bugs Matter finding findings, which are... Oh. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. I, I, read, <laughs> I saw that earlier and I was like, we can't have anything. Jesus. All right, fine. Yes. Bugs Matter. Yeah, they do. They do. <laughs> At least it's not Bugs Lives Matter. That's terrible. <laughs> Um, the 2021 Bugs Matter findings, which were published in a report released by Kent Wildlife Trust and Bug Life, uh, show the number of insects sampled on vehicle number plates by citizen scientists across Scotland decreased by a staggering 27% between 2004 and 2021. These findings are consistent with research that has widely reported declining trends in insects population globally. Um, I'll stop there. Uh, I I mean, what, what do you what do you what do you think about that? Um, I think 
it is, I think it is very alarming. Um, there was a study, I wish that I knew, no, sorry, a report uh, similar to this in the U.S. maybe like 10 years ago, around like 2010, yeah. uh, that said sort of the same thing. And then also, you know, we've been hearing now for quite some time about the decline of like bees and, um, yeah, and uh, pollinating insects and how dangerous that is for our crops and flowers and honey and, and you know, so much of the so much of the sort of food ecosystem that we survive off of here. Um, and I think, you know, considering it in a very serious tone, it is, it is terrifying. I mean, without yeah. insects, you know, they are sort of like, it's like dirt, plants, insects, <laughs> and then, yes. you know, everything that eats all of that, which is literally every other organism on the right. planet. Right. So without them, like, you know, we're in serious, serious trouble. That's um, a great point. But, you know, I mean, there's also like, you know, I have driven a car a great deal of distance and gotten all those bugs on my car and been like, geez, this is actually kind of gnarly, you know, to see all these things splattered here. So, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think insects, it, it, the thing with extinction and is you start with the bigger animals and plants, uh, particularly me megafauna as they call them, and, and everybody notices that, right? Yeah. Like first, right off the bat. Yeah. And then, and then you know, these, these other organisms just kind of go unnoticed when they disappear. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we're not talking about extinction, we're talking about populations. and you know insects in terms of biomass are like i think yeah. maybe the biggest animal group so yeah. it's not like yeah. we're not going to have enough insects but it is concerning when you see this big drop yeah. in um you know population yeah like that it so, is it is because there, there's you're right they're so fundamental they are you know in, yeah. in terms of the in terms of the ecosystem well and why can't it be the cockroaches you know like why can't they <laughs> disappear you know i i, I wouldn't be so opposed to you know 30 percent of them disappearing in new york you know in, in other areas where they are where they're native you know that, that's cool but in new york city and you know the suburbs and all that stuff like get rid of them first i think <laughs> i think that there's a there's a think the thinking is that even if there was like a nuclear war there would be cockroaches left like they could they could survive and you know I, and i think the sad part is i think they know that i think i think they are well aware that like and they're like we're just waiting on you guys to like die off did you worry so know, let's 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 everything. read let's read the rest of this uh read down a little bit you mean to read it um yeah if you want to yeah sure can you see the can yeah. you see everything okay Insect counts differed across the UK and England, suffered the greatest decline with 65% fewer recorded in 2021 than in 2004. Wales recorded 55% fewer insects, while Scotland saw the smallest decline, still with 28% fewer insects in 2021 when compared to 2004 figures. There were too few surveys conducted in Northern Ireland to analyze and draw conclusions. Inspired by the windscreen phenomenon, the number of insects squashed on the windscreens of cars today compared to several decades ago, Bugs Matter enlists the help of the public to monitor the health of the UK's insect populations. The concept is simple. Before making an essential journey in a vehicle, clean the number plate. After each journey, count the insects squashed on the number plate using a splatometer grid, which is posted to you when you download the free Bugs Matter app. A photo <laughs> and count details are submitted via the app. That's nice. That's pretty cool, actually. <clears throat> yeah. And, and it's a nice, you know, like, it's a it's a rec rectangle, right? That mm -hmm. they can grid out and, you know, actually 
measure something meaningful. Yeah. Um, so I'm just curious if they mention at all, um, what you know, what why they think that that it's happening. Um, mm. I didn't know if they got into that. Um, Probably not. Oh, there's a picture of the splatometer. The splatometer. It's Miles like a Miles little Miles. little grid that goes over your license plate for nice. for people listening. Um, yeah. Anyways, I don't think they really <laughs> they didn't really offer much in that. So, um, if you had to speculate, I mean, like, what would you think would be causing it? <sighs> Gosh, I don't know. Uh, probably like well insect I mean, climate science, change pesticides. maybe yeah okay yeah climate change yeah there we go that's better okay um yeah i would just think changing climate climate mm-hmm. like seasonal uh changes mm-hmm. that could in, it could affect reproductive cycles mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um that was true so i did an article a number of years ago about these bark beetles that were kind of going across the West and destroying all the, um, pine trees. They were like drilling in and, mm-hmm. and it was a really bad, this isn't like 2009, it was really bad, but you know, when the weather cycles would change, it would, it would, it could either increase or decrease their population. Well, it wasn't getting cold enough when it got, when there were cold snaps, it would kill off the larvae and then they would, um, not be as not able to yeah. reproduce. So that, that'd be my guess with insects hmm. you know yeah i i would think i mean i don't know what's going on in scotland but i my first guess would be insecticides or pesticides and then my second guess would be something probably like what you're saying where the larvae are not being able well, the bugs are just not being able to reproduce like in the numbers that they normally are because they didn't say that it was one specific type of bug they just said the insect population like on mass so yeah whatever it is it's affecting like all insects yeah sounds like yeah yeah cool i think you should move a little closer just we'll, we'll do a little forced perspective there you go <laughs> now you look now you look taller still significantly shorter than you but, but yes there we go all right um yes i'm six foot seven so it's hard to it's hard to compete with <laughs> six foot seven but to most people when they probably have seen my podcast they're just like on on youtube they're just like oh he looks like a normal size but now they're seeing me in relation to like a normal size (laughs) all right cool um anything else on that i think we no it's interesting yeah it's it's interesting concerning i like that i like that i mean that's what i i I like that splatometer thing i love citizen science it's great um all right let's well since we talked about rats Let's talk about let's talk about New York City rats. Yum. <laughs> yum, yum, Another yum. interesting study. So, um, this article, uh, the headline is this is from Science Alert, which is an Australian um, publication, and they're actually really great. They put out a lot of content, like mm-hmm. every day, a lot of articles. Um, they say the headline is "City Rats Aren't the Deadly Disease Sponges We Think." Scientists explain why. Rats have been seen as filthy disease spreaders since at least the time of the plague, but new research shows that rodents and other city-dwelling animals are less likely to cause the next pandemic than previously thought. Researchers at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. studied data on nearly 3,000 mammals, expecting to find that those living in urban environments hosted more viruses that could be um, 
caught by humans because they were in such close contact. They found that urban animals did, in fact, carry 10 times as many kinds of disease, but also that more than 100 times as many studies had been published uh, about them. When the research is corrected for this massive bias, a longstanding scientific preference to study animals scuttling under our feet rather than hiding in rainforests, they were surprised to find that rats were no more likely to be the source of a new human disease than other animals. Um, they go on to say, yeah, still don't, don't, don't make friends with the subway rats. <laughs> um, also looking at pigeons, other, um, okay. So anyways, I think that's not, um, I, I feel like the headline's a little bit misleading here. Yeah. It's like <clears throat> city rats aren't, well, no, I guess that makes sense. Um, but they are full of diseases. Yeah. But Still it's factors. also that they're not, um, they're not any sort of more dead or any more likely deadly than yeah to to hide to to have something that would actually affect humans. Yes. Yeah. So I guess that's comforting. Yeah. I uh, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, they're saying that you know just because it's more so because we have so much research on these animals that live, you know, in these environments with us in, in urban environments and mm -hmm. cities versus going out to the rainforest or, you know, studying a population that is there, they still carry diseases as well. They just are less likely to come in contact with humans. Right. Yeah. Right. But like, as we saw with this coronavirus, they actually think that it w was these, actually it was these creatures that we don't come in contact with a lot mm -hmm. coming into contact with domesticated animals and then mm -hmm. pass like those domesticated animals act as like this vector in between yeah. the the wild animals and and us yeah. you know so it's it's rough it's rough i mean being like being mammals i mean we we have such similar physiology ultimately you know so yeah. it's, it's possible for things to like go from bat to rat to cat to person person yeah. to you know yeah it, yeah it's it's <sighs> weird and gross but it's true yeah. <laughs> I, it made me think of too about the bubonic plague right because mm -hmm. that was what what we know now i mean back in the day they thought it was like the bad air you know yeah. that was causing it or whatever you know could and, you imagine living back then yeah like what am i gonna do <laughs> like i can't get away from the air like what do i do <laughs> And they, they had this vague notion it had maybe something to do with pests, but <laughs> but turned out to be fleas actually yeah, that were passing the pest, this yeah. the yeah. the um the plague to from from rats to humans. So it wasn't a direct wasn't direct um, transmission there either. Yes. Um, I guess when I think of rodents too, I think about hantavirus and things like that. So they do carry they their like their feces can carry some. Yeah, and they mentioned I think in the article. Lip, lip, I forgot the name of it, but <clears throat> there's a virus that they talk about specifically there. But yeah, obviously, you know, COVID-19 is, is a fantastic example of literally this or the bubonic plague. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, yeah, there's doubts about that, too, whether it was really animal born or whatever. But we won't get into that. That's, that's a whole other thing. And I, I'm very confused about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, so. Oh man, we're just getting like these great segues because we went we went from, really, from for, we went from like I think it's you giving <laughs> us all these great segues because now we're talking about we're talking about uh, coronavirus so let's talk about coronavirus let's do it let's give let's give Kovisha a little time 
<laughs> Kovisha. Yeah. I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> Just give her a little time. I'm gonna have a, uh, sorry, I'm going to open a seltzer here. It's getting a little bit warm in here. And it's Cinco de Mayo. It is. Woo-hoo! Cheers. <laughs> All right. So this is uh, from Nature. So, I love Nature. Yes. used to work for them uh, on their multimedia stuff. So um, they have their, this article, the headline is, Most U.S. Kids Have Caught the Coronavirus Antibody, Antibody, an, antibody <laughs> Survey Finds. Uh, study shows that infection in very young children doubled during the Omicron wave. Roughly two in every three children aged between one and four years old in the United States have been infected with uh, COVID, according to a nationwide analysis. Infections in that age group increased more than in any other during the Omicron wave, which researchers say demonstrates the variant's high transmissibility. Researchers looked for COVID-19 antibodies in blood samples from more than 86,000 children. Uh, under 18 years old, including some 6,100 children aged between one and four. In the youngest children, the number of infections more than doubled from 33% to 68% between December 20, uh, December 2021 and February 2022. Although the analysis involved a small number of very young children, the results are consistent with a rapid rise in documented infections in that age group. Um, so let's see let's look at this chart so the chart shows that pretty much everybody went up during (laughs) you know infections for every age group went up um during coronavirus but i guess the change in infections for for that age group was higher yeah um so let's see trying to like get the main points mm-hmm. of this um i think this is interesting um mostly because i think that at this point with covid we can pretty much say it's an endemic disease and we like so many people have had it that it's not it's not really a novel thing anymore yeah. and you know, kids have always been in a very low risk group for, for, um, disease, you know, for severe illness as a result of COVID, fortunately, no, they're very different than, than influenza. So, you know, if 60 per, you know, if two thirds of kids are already had it, then, I mean, that's even better. Cause they're like, have probably great immunity from it at this point, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're 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 approaching, you know, herd immunity essentially with kids. So that's great. Yeah. In that young age group. Um, At least with the Omicron variant, it seems like, or from what this is saying. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to see what happens uh, in you know a year, and that's something that I've really been thinking about is when we get back to winter, twenty twenty two, going into twenty twenty three. Yeah. What will what will the COVID virus look like? Like, what will infection rates look like? Will it be need for more like boosters and that sort of thing? Um, yeah. yeah, it's been really interesting. And what what is also interesting is at least like in my community, or you know, like uh, in Williamsburg and Bushwick, and then sort of around people my age, is that there's been sort yeah. of like a late 
recent wave of people becoming infected again with coronavirus and COVID, yeah. um, which is not surprising, but surprising. Like, it's just is weird. I don't know. It, I, I've had a, like a lot of coworkers that have been out sick, um, and it's just kind of like, wow, you know. I thought <laughs> the the waves were kind of done, especially going getting towards warmer weather, but yeah, I don't know. Something happened. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's been going. I th- I I think it's just been going around. Like we, you know, my my dad, for example, has had it. Mm-hmm. He's I think quadruple vaccinated or whatever mm-hmm. at this point. He got mm-hmm. it again. It got sick. Yeah, you know, not not real sick, but um. So it's going around. Now the other weird thing is, um, you know, in New York City in particular, like kids are kids from two to four are also supposed to be still be wearing masks, and they're like the only group. At this point, they're supposed to be wearing masks. Yes, in well. daycares, which I think is super weird, and <laughs> it's like, why two to four year olds? And then, and then something like this comes out and shows that, like, okay, six, like sixty seven percent have already probably already had it. It may even be higher. Who knows? But it's like, what are we? Why? Why are these kids still in masks? It's very strange. And it, it is strange. I mean, the, the, the whole thing <laughs> is just. Uh, I, I mean, like even even getting on the on the train, like getting on the subway. When now, when I descend down to you know, like the platform, I'm like, oh, I don't need the mask. You know, I'm all right. It's fresh air. <laughs> but the moment I get on the train, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like oh my god, the train air. I'm like, I'm gonna, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> Get me in and out of here, like I, as quick as possible. <laughs> I think that I think that's like. I think that's the experience of a lot of New Yorkers. It's like, <laughs> like, you know what? We don't mind the mask. Like, we're just gonna like coronavirus doesn't matter. We're just we're gonna yeah. wear it anyways yeah. because it's often doesn't smell good, and you're all jammed in with everybody. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I think maybe that'll stick around at least in New York. I think so. During during the cold cold and flu season, definitely during yeah. the cold flu season, yeah. which is good. That's a good thing. Cause, yeah, yeah. There's upsides to masks, but. But I think it should be voluntary at this point. That's my my take. Um, but that's another thing where it's like, oh, we could really get into that. But uh, cool. We'll keep it moving. <laughs> All right. So this uh, next story. Yeah, let's do this one. This one is super weird. It's very gross. I know. I just saw this and I was like, oh, this sounds. But it's but it's it's fantastic it really is this this is part of the like science fiction come to life that that like invigorates and worries me at the same time this this is really interesting all right so yeah we shouldn't hype it too much because i think people listening oh actually and i haven't put it up on the screen so people don't know what the hell we're talking about oh there you go um so r2 this is great. Uh, I always like to say where it's from. This is from the Guardian. R R two D two robot chef imitates human eating process to create tastier food. Cambridge scientists say uh, a robot is capable of tasting and checking whether uh, a balance of flavors is right. So this is like AI moving into culinary stuff. Uh, the culinary robots are here not only to distinguish between food which tastes good and which doesn't, but also to become better cooks. A robot chef designed by researchers at Cambridge University has been trained to taste a dish's saltiness and the myriad of ingredients at different stages of chewing, a process imitating that of humans. It is a step above current electronic testing that only provides a snapshot of food salinity. 
replicating the human process, researchers say, should result in a tastier end product. If robots are able to be used for certain aspects of food preparation, it's important that they are able to taste what they're cooking. <laughs> yes, I guess. Um, the concept of tasting as you go, checking whether the balance of flavors is right in a dish's cooking process is a critical approach, according to researchers, as the human perception of taste relies on saliva produced during chewing and digestive enzymes to decide whether food is enjoyable or not. So there's a little video here. Let's take a look at this. Somebody that took it hours to chew. Yeah. Um, let's see. The, to map human taste, the researchers trained the robot chef to make omelets. It then tasted nine variations of scrambled egg and tomatoes at three stages of the chewing process. A salinity sensor attached to the robot's arm provided readings as the robot prepared dishes to imitate the chewing pro pro progress. The team blended the egg mixture and had the robot test the dish again. So shocky, the researcher uh, says it can do much more than just say a dish is too salty or not salty enough. For example, it can it is capable of deciding whether more mixing is needed or other ingredients. In the end, it's just a single sensor, which wouldn't be able to do two different ingredients. Okay, um, but thanks to chewing, we see all the different changes through the mechanical processing. Um, this is how I read articles, by the way. I like read about <laughs> halfway down, and then I go, "Okay, well, what? Like, what? What's the what's the point?" Um, Same, honestly. So, like, what what do they want to do with this? Is my question. Um, Let's see. Looking ahead, the researchers hope to teach the robot to adapt an adapt to an individual's taste, such as preferring sweet or oily food, and become an essential part of households. So, it sounds like leap forward in robotic cooking, and by using machine and deep learning. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when I was reading this. Algorithms, mastication will help robot chefs adjust taste for different dishes and users. So perhaps <clears throat> you could go out and purchase a robot. This would really be helpful for people who actually can't cook for themselves. Mm. So maybe people who have some sort of disability or, uh, or maybe even, uh, you know, people who can purchase like an extremely expensive robot to prepare their dishes for them. I mean, it would have to be really sophisticated um, yeah. to do that but it could work in either spectrum like if you're someone who can't really prepare meals for yourself for whatever reason you could purchase this robot program your taste and your palate into it and then it could if it can cook you know it could make eggs you know at least with the taste yeah that you like uh or on the other end of the spectrum perhaps you could 
uh, use this robot to make, oh, what's an extremely complex dish? Like, um, I don't know, like a, not a creme brulee, that's not complex, but like <clears throat> something really, really difficult, like a cake or something like that that requires a bunch of steps. Uh, and the robot can maybe perfectly make this cake for you. So, so it's, 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 it's learning to taste yeah. and then maybe improving upon the dish every time it makes it. But I, I guess my question would be, I mean, taste is, there's definitely a biomechanical process that happens, but it's also a subjective thing yeah. where you, you know, it, it, everybody obviously likes different flavors and things. There's, there's a subjective interpretation of that. Very. And, and Very. so, I mean, robots can't do that. They, they, can't. they can't, they don't have that qualitative yeah. sense of, Ooh, this tastes good or bad right. or yeah, right. Exactly. So I don't know how you like, I'm just, I think with mach well, machine learning, you could use to kind of program good and bad, but still it would be based on one person's taste, which is the problem with like, machine learning bias is that, you know, it's built off of whoever built the program to teach the machine, whatever. So, for example, if you, you know, have a group of people mm. that taste cilantro as soap, which is so crazy to me because cilantro <laughs> to me tastes like cilantro, but I told the robot to put the cilantro in there, you know, and then like everyone comes over and they're like, what is this soap that you served us? And I'm like, I don't know, I thought it tastes great. Like, <laughs> Fire the robot! Like he's out of here. <laughs> Take him back to Home Depot. Yeah, that's a that cilantro is a weird one, but that that's a great that's a great um, point. Uh, also, I I was just thinking about you know cultural differences in mm -hmm. terms of what people like, um, like the ta the bitter flavor, for example, very mm -hmm. prominent in like Asian foods. They love bitter greens and, and bitter flavors, but to the American palate, it's like oh, that's not yeah. unless you get used to it and and, yeah. and liking it. You're, you're, you don't necessarily like it, but that's, it's, again, it's a very subjective thing based on how you grew up, yeah. what you, food you grew up with, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. anyways, um, it's interesting though. Um, it's cool. I, I yeah. Like it's, this. it's also, it's also got some dystopic vibes to it, you know, enslaving <laughs> a whole like section of people and just feeding them mush that the robot has programmed to taste like, you know, yeah. All right. Roast. <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah and you know it's I, I i immediately think of like the jetsons too with like yeah. you know the the, the, are, are, the chefs are like, they the, the ones robots. that put the, put the little pill in the microwave and like put water on it and then it, yeah, it's yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah and then it like blossoms into like a whole meal it's like god that was easy that was, <laughs> that was fantastic <laughs> Or you just, you order like hello fresh and then you just pull this robot out, you know, and put it on your counter. Also brilliant. That could happen. Let me start some patents around here. That's, that, we need to do. that's a project for uh, Elon Musk, I think. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Don't give him any more projects. Give us that project. <laughs> oh he has all of Twitter. He's good. That's, yeah. Oh, this I love. Okay. This is, this is right up my alley. All right. So let's see. Um, all right, this is from Salon. I actually haven't been on Salon in a while. Their website looks very different. Looks like straight out of the 70s, kind of. It does. Like their fonts and stuff. Uh, okay, so this is all about pterosaurs. I know, I love pterosaurs too. Fascinating, <laughs> fascinating creatures. Excuse me. So, actually, why don't you read this one? Yeah. Uh, you can read it there. Okay. Too, so. Pterosaurs had brightly colored feathers like toucans, according to a new study. <clears throat> 
Pterosaurs, flying reptiles that coexisted with dinosaurs, have been on a roll lately, or rather, their fossils have, as a plethora of recent discoveries has helped flesh out the evolutionary timeline with new insights into prehistoric life. Last year, paleontologists discovered a miniature pterosaur that had opposable thumbs similar to humans and other primates. Also in 2021, scientists cracked the mystery of how pterodactyls were able to swoop down and scoop up large prey without breaking their necks. The answer, they had bones in their necks with structures similar to the spokes and bicycle wheels. Now a new study reveals something surprising about pterosaurs. They may have possessed colored feathers like a toucan or a parrot. If true, it would help fit together the evolutionary puzzle pieces that tie together reptiles, dinosaurs, and modern birds. Let me stop there. Uh, yeah, you can read a little bit more, I think. According to a recent study published in the scientific journal Nature, a Brazilian fossil of a pterosaur called Tupendactylus imperator <laughs> That's so awesome. included extensive <laughs> amounts of soft tissue. Although there are concerns about the fossil's murky origins, which could jeopardize its ability to be considered for legitimate scientific study, that's weird. Its conclusions are nevertheless captivating. The researchers found fossils of microscopic structures known as melanosomes, which scientists can use to learn about animals' structural colors based on the melanosomes' shape, density, and distribution throughout the skin. In the case of this pterosaur, the scientists discovered that there were different shapes of melanosomes in the pterosaur's skin, as well as feathery and pillowy filament bodies within its skull. These two features suggested the pterosaur's skin was not only colored, it had multiple colors. This makes the new fossil stand in stark contrast to its predecessors. Those pterosaurs had melanosomes with the same shapes, meaning they either had the same color or possessed other chemicals in their skin, which gave them different hues. Mm -hmm. Tupendactylus imperator was a bird-like creature with a wingspan of around 10 feet and a large flat protrusion on their head called a sagittal crest that stuck up vertically like a shark fin. They lived in the early Cretaceous period between 145 and 100 million years ago. The melanosomes formed distinct populations in different feather types in the skin, a feature previously known only in theropod dinosaurs, such as birds, oh, I'm sorry, including birds. The scientists explain in their paper, these tissue-specific melanosome geometries in pterosaurs indicate that manipulation of feather color and thus functions of feathers and visual communication has deep evolutionary origins. These features show that genetic regulation of melanosome chemistry and shape was active early in feather evolution. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so I think what uh, is interesting to me is that I actually didn't know pterosaurs had feathers. Um, I know they had some kind of like hair-like <coughs> structures. Mm -hmm. There there was another name for them, but I didn't know that they actually had feathers. So yeah. that's that's news to me. Um, and apparently they're very colorful. Yeah. This is, this is really fascinating. There, there's a lot of evolution and science in here, um, which a lot of people, we sort of like live with, but people don't really realize. So like the opposable thumbs uh, and birds and the feathers and pterosaurs, which were not birds, um, those are different types of like convergent evolution, uh, things that evolved in completely different sections uh, of like yeah. organisms, but it's the same sort of structure and it evolved either for the same reason or perhaps for a different reason, Yeah, um, which is really, really fascinating because it shows that some of these animals probably inhabited the same areas or fed the same way or ate the same types of things and needed like a similar structure. Mm. I, I wrote a paper on this, like similar to like how squid have beaks and birds have beaks and insects have beaks and, yeah. and, and like 
platypuses have beaks, but yeah. they're all different types yeah. of organisms. But the beak does yeah. the same thing. Right. And they even look the same. Right. Yeah, but a squid clearly is not a bird. So it's like... Yeah. Well, yeah. And the, and the structure <laughs> may have evolved from completely different body parts, right? Yes. So, like, you know, the yeah. classic would be... Well, I was going to say a bat's wings, but a bird's wings and a bat wings, I think they're different bones, you know, mm -hmm. in the... Mm -hmm. I'd have to look at that a little bit more closely, but they're not the same. Or if yeah. you look at a shark's tail and a dolphin tail or whatever, they're different, mm -hmm. different parts of the body they evolve from. So yes, but they do the same thing. They propel the animal through yeah. the water, and they both need that same like functioning body part <clears throat> in their morphology to do the same thing in that environment. Yeah. And then the other fascinating thing here, which literally the article is focusing on, which is the feathers, is that a lot of things, a lot of uh, a lot of characteristics I forgot the word that we use but anyways a lot of stuff that animals have <laughs> that's really cool that we know them by like we identify them by it evolved a lot of times for a completely different purpose so like uh, uh -huh. I can't remember there was a there's a awesome hypothesis about what, why feathers came about and I think it might have been for like either insulation mm -hmm. or yeah, yeah. or or a lot of times it's for like the most simple or obvious thing, which is like uh, helping to select a like sexual mate. And so like the mm -hmm. colors are there to like make the birds stand out so that, you know, the other birds will notice that one or the crest is there to do the same thing or yeah. the, or the, you know, you know, whatever. But it's like, we know it as feathers that help the birds fly, but that became yeah. like a secondary characteristic of having yeah. feathers is that, oh, I can also use this to fly <laughs> and evade predators. And then, you know, my babies will do the same thing. And then all of a sudden we have birds, you know, yeah. when really I got feathers because I was cold. Like, yeah, yeah. It's weird to think about that as to think of feathers as a secondary function of mm -hmm. something, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're so associated with flight at this point. <clears throat> exactly. But yeah, to think, well, that's, yeah, and I think you're right. I don't think they evolved with, with I mean, they kind of evolved with that in mind. Yeah. I mean, um, with uh, with flight in mind, and then just became that secondary use. It's just it's just weird to think of it that way. It is. And 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 evolution in general is hard. It's, it's, it's a hard thing, I think, for people to grasp, for yeah. most people, because it takes thinking about things in cycles, these mm -hmm. iterative cycles that mm -hmm. like over mm -hmm. time things, you know, changed and adapted and, yeah. and, um, it's, it's hard to talk about too, because yeah. it's not just like this, then that it's like this and then that, and then that, and then that, okay. <laughs> and then fast forward like a hundred thousand years and then something yeah. looks different. You know, yeah. it's like, how do you talk about that with, with people that aren't, you know, scientists or, yeah. or science educated, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, I think, I think pterosaurs are fascinating and, uh, like you're saying also, it's just another example of, um, of, you know, uh, something evolving multiple times. Yeah. Mammals, reptiles, um, fish, flying mm -hmm. fish, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> fish, flying fish, the fish that, that came out of the. Is the, like the same fish that could actually breathe oxygen is not the same fish that developed uh, like bones and its fins so it could walk on land. Those are two completely different fish. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah. that's also yeah. fascinating because you would think that, like, well, the fish that could breathe air is clearly the one that, like, made on the land, but it's not. It's the one that could, like, use its feet to grasp and crawl around through, like, craggy areas uh. to find more food. 
that's the one that finally made it onto land, oh, yeah. yeah, which is you know what spawned everything else. Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah, because yeah, that's right, because there's even lungfish yeah. that that like breathe oxygen, but they don't really come on land. You mm-hmm. know, they just burrow in the mud, and mm-hmm. when it gets um, when it gets dry. Yeah. Anyways, um, but that's cool. Yeah, and and I just didn't know that pterosaurs even had feathers. So new one on me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's see, how are we doing on time? I think we covered, um, the things that we wanted to cover. Um, I don't know, let's see, do we have anybody watching this? No, I don't think so. Well, we got some likes. Good. And I thought this was actually kind of fun. Yeah. And it's just, it's fun to talk about these stories and like, they just they just are like i mean it's not even necessarily about the story itself it's just like it's a segue to talk about other things that that you want to talk about right yeah yeah. like evolution for example yeah um well cool um well if if the one person watching now (laughs) is that us (laughs) maybe are we the one person write a comment i'm gonna write a comment to myself no i'm just kidding um (laughs) anyways um well i think we should probably we should probably wrap up there, um, unless there's anything else that you wanted to talk about science-wise. Oh, this is great. Okay, I cool. Loved it. And the pterodactyls, which is <laughs> love it. Couldn't have asked for anything better. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm I'm so uh, grateful to you for coming on and being the first in-person guest on this new format that that we're trying out thank you thank you um so i really appreciate it and for people that are listening um to this in audio form um actually if they're watching the youtube uh, video later where can they find you where do you hang out yes in the digital realm the digital realm uh michaelmillscience.com is my website and then you also can find me at Michael Mills, but Michael spelled the wrong way. M I C H E A L M I L L S. Oh, wrong way. Sorry. Michael spelled the other way. I don't know. Okay. Either one's subjective. But, but uh, yeah, you can find me there on Instagram and I'm building a science communication Twitter. I think it's actually SciCom Obsessed. Uh, oh, but I don't I like have, it. thank you. I don't have any tweets yet. So maybe by the time you watch this or hear this, I'll have this started communicating there. Uh, but yeah, that's where you can find me and, um, yeah, let's talk. I I love having conversations about everything, science, especially, uh, biology, megafauna, as you said earlier, uh, microfauna, microbiology. But you're, I mean, you're into a lot of different stuff. So you're, you're not just, you know, maybe on Twitter, you'll be a little more focused, but I've noticed Mm -hmm. in your, like your Instagram, your you know yeah it's just it's just you it is it is just me it's very raw very very (laughs) real michael mills lots of working out lots of uh travel lots of um hanging out in new york city lots of art lots and lots and lots of like uh uh uh, graphic illustration and Uh um and what else and lots of um music as well and i originally moved here to do music music is music and entertainment are really like near and dear to my heart so yeah. yeah well i find i find your instagram at least very entertaining so. <laughs> thank you thank you i appreciate it <laughs> all right cool well i guess we'll wrap it up there and um thanks to anybody that might have seen this and, and watched and um we'll we'll try to do it again 
Yes. And um, I think we'll just stop there. Okay. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Well, that's it for this show. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Email us at feedback at sciencecentric.com. Also, don't forget to rate this show and leave a review wherever you happen to download your podcasts. You can directly support future episodes by joining our Patreon page for as little as a dollar per month. We have a couple of nice benefits available, including early access to new episodes and a monthly live Q&A with yours truly. Head over to sciencecentric.com support for more info. ScienceCentric is a FlowSpark Media production. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Eric Olson.